The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and uh, open back up to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, the last time we were in 1 Peter uh, together, we turned the corner from chapter 4 and uh, Peter was preparing the church to expect suffering in chapter 4. And we dove into chapter 5 where Peter was exhorting the elders of the church to be examples in their shepherding. In uh, chapter 4 verse 12, there was a direct address to the church at large. Uh, where Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Expect suffering. Uh, That was the the main thrust of uh, of the last verses in chapter 4. And then beginning in chapter 5, there's a specific word to the elders of the church in verses 1 and 2, where Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. And the question that we asked ourselves last time is, what is the connection between suffering and shepherding? Is there a hard break between chapter 4 and chapter 5? Is Peter leaving this discussion of suffering and moving on to something that's completely new? Or is there a connection between shepherding and suffering? Suffering for righteousness, as we said last time, is the occupational hazard of the ministry. That's part of the job description for for shepherds, to be willing to suffer. And we demonstrated that in a a number of of ways. First of all, uh, suffering is explicitly mentioned as the example of Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 5 again in verse 1, Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of what? The sufferings of Christ. That the sufferings of Christ are mentioned as an example for shepherds in this discussion of shepherding. So these fellow elders are to follow the example of the chief shepherd. These shepherds are to follow the example of their chief shepherd in being willing to suffer. In John 15 and verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So suffering is part of our part of the, the, the package in following the example of, of Jesus Christ. Also, suffering is part of the, the shepherd proving himself to be an example to the flock, which is also something that's mentioned explicitly in chapter 5 and verse 3. Verse 3 says that elders are to prove themselves to be examples to the flock. And what's the context of this example? The, the previous context is all about suffering for the sake of righteousness, and that's what Peter's been talking about. So if, a, if an elder is to be an example, he's also to be an example in his suffering. Prove yourself to be an example. Be an example to your flock. If you're not willing to do what Peter has exhorted the rest of the congregation to do, how can you say that you're an example and a shepherd over the flock? You need to be willing to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And finally, if Peter is encouraging the believers not to be surprised at suffering, now the person who should be the least surprised is the pastor. <laughs> he should be the least surprised out of everybody that he suffers. If the believer is not to be surprised about it, why shouldn't the, the shepherds not be surprised about it? Hey, I, I expect this. You know, as the scripture said, strike the shepherd to scatter the sheep. You know, the sheep will scatter. The, the, the pastor is the target. Like I, like I mentioned up in Canada, uh, when uh, the, the churches were ordered to be closed and uh, James Coates, along with his church, kept the doors open, uh, they didn't go after an usher or somebody sitting in the back row. They went straight for the top. Who's the pastor of this flock? And that's the one that they hauled off to jail because he was the one who was first in line. And Peter knows if there's going to be a fiery ordeal, the fire is going to be the hottest for the shepherd. Verse 17 says it's time for judgment in chapter 4 to begin with the household of God. And what better place to begin than with the shepherds of the flock? In Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 6, it says, You shall start from my sanctuary. Speaking about a a judgment that would come through the midst of Israel, of uh, Jerusalem. It says, You shall start from my sanctuary, God says. And they started with the elders who were before the temple. 
So safety has never been a, a number one priority for the ministry. Ministry has always been a, a dangerous calling, and suffering is an occupational hazard for the shepherd. And that was one of the lessons that Paul tried to pass along to his son in the faith, Timothy, like we mentioned last time. You know, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Join with me in suffering, he says, 2 Timothy 1.8. 2 Timothy 2.3, suffer hardship with me. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. You, you can't avoid this, Timothy. If you're going to be faithful, you're going to experience suffering. So you might as well embrace it. Join with me. Join with me. So the elders need to be exhorted about this because they have the task of providing help and comfort, strength and guidance for those who are underneath their charge. And they're expected to be the example for the rest of their flock, an example that others can follow. And this is what Peter's been, been doing here. He's been exhorting the shepherds to stand firm, stand firm for the faith. But even though this is primarily a word for the shepherds, since they're to be examples for the flock, this is also a word to, to the rest of us, right? Everybody's to follow this example. So let's jump in here and uh, see the exhortation again in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this Sunday as we always do, Lord, pleading for your help. Knowing that we can't do this without you, we, we don't approach your word and, and attempt to, to understand what it says without acknowledging that this is your truth, this is your word. So Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And, uh, Father, that you would uh, use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people. Uh, Father, I pray that we would apply these things to our lives. Help us to, to learn from your word today. Help us to be changed by it. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. In this text, we'll see how, how Peter exhorted the elders, what Peter exhorted the elders, how the elders were to follow that exhortation, and also what the results of that exhortation are uh, the last time we were to, together, we covered the first two. How did Peter exhort the elders? And this is all review here in verse 1. He exhorts them in humility as a, as a fellow elder. I'm just a fellow elder. I'm a witness of the, the glory of, or the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of that future glory along with you. So rather than exhort as an apostle, he refers to himself as a, a fellow elder. I'm, I'm one who's in the trenches with you. And what I'm encouraging you to do is the same thing that I myself have come underneath the authority of. I, I don't want to exhort you to do something that I don't do myself. He doesn't address them as a superior, but as a partner. And as we saw before, Peter himself bore suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. He himself was an example in suffering. He was arrested, threatened, imprisoned, beaten. Peter knew what he was asking these leaders to do, to stand up and be willing to take the, the blows for Christ. And as an elder, a fellow elder, he himself was an example to the flock. And what the elders were to their specific individual local flocks, Peter was uh, to the entire flock. You know, speaking to churches, multiple churches, he was an example to all of these churches. So Peter's saying, I'm right alongside of you. I'm doing the same work that I'm calling you to do, and I have to serve as a mature example. I'm telling you to do what I've done. He also speaks as an eyewitness of, of the sufferings of Christ. Peter witnessed the, the rejection of Jesus, alienation from his family, the plots to take his life, the agony in the garden, the betrayal of Judas, the, the, the beating, the scourging in the court. Peter witnessed all of that. And after the resurrection, he saw the nail prints in Jesus' hands and his feet, the, the spear, the, the, the hole in his side from the spear. Peter witnessed the sufferings of Jesus. And he says, I've, I've seen what our master went through. This, this is the chief shepherd. I've seen what he's been through. And it's on the basis of that that I'm encouraging you, that I'm exhorting you to do the same thing. I saw the chief shepherd suffer, and I'm asking you to, to fall in line. Peter reminds these elders, I, I've seen it. 
I've seen the suffering of our, our Lord, and I'm a witness to that. I'm willing to give my life for that witness. Uh, martus, the, the word for witness, was eventually used for martyrs, those who would give their life for the truth that they proclaimed. And Peter says, I'm willing to, to give my life for this truth. I've seen him. I've seen him suffer. And he's also a partaker of that future glory. And there's a connection in uh, surrounding this context between the glory that is to be revealed and the suffering that we endure now. In uh, verse 1, Peter considers himself a partaker of that glory that's to be revealed. And that's something that could be said about all believers, but it's especially true for those who are willing to suffer. And we've already seen that connection. If you look back to chapter 4 and verse 13, look what it says. Chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. There's a connection between suffering and glory. That if you're willing to suffer now, if you're willing to bear up under suffering now, there's an increased measure of glory that you'll experience in the future. So he says, I'm a partaker of that future glory that's to be revealed. And even in a greater degree, why? Because I've been willing to suffer. And that's what I'm asking you to do. He sees himself as one who can keep on rejoicing because he has personally shared in the suffering of Jesus Christ. And the glory comes up in the front. Instead of Peter saying, I'm a partaker of the the glory that's to be revealed, like I mentioned last time in the original language, he says, I'm an about-to-be-revealed glory partaker. You know, he puts the, the glory up front. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that glory. <laughs> I, I, I'm waiting for it. It's going to be revealed. I can't wait. I'm anticipating it. And uh, Peter, as we, we mentioned, saw a, a foretaste of that future glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, I know what I'm talking about, and I can't wait to be a partaker of that future glory. And what kind of encouragement would that have been to these leaders who are under the threat of, of persecution it's, a, it's an encouragement to, to keep pressing on. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. I, 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 I want to be a partaker of that future glory as well. And this momentary light affliction, as 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And I'm willing to bear under it now for that eternal glory in the future. We also covered what Peter exhorted these elders to do in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the responsibility that's given to the shepherds, to to, to shepherd, to feed. The primary duty and responsibility of the shepherd is to feed the flock of God. Actually, our our English word pastor comes from the the word pasture, you know, where you you feed the, the flock, where the flock grazes. You know, it's a primary duty of the shepherd to feed the sheep. And it's what Jesus instructed Peter to do himself in John 21, uh, where he says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my lambs. And that word for, for tend is the Greek word bosco, which means to feed. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed the lambs. If you truly love me, if, if you care about me, Peter, you'll tend to my lambs. You'll make sure that my sheep are fed. And what's interesting is that the flock that's cared for is said to be belong to Jesus Christ. You know, don't, don't feed your sheep, feed my sheep. <laughs> These are my sheep. These are my lambs. Over in 1 Peter, the flock is called the flock of God. It's God's flock. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul says that this flock of God is purchased with the blood of God, referring to Jesus Christ, another text uh, that shows the divinity of Jesus Christ. The blood of God is what purchased the, the sheep, and Jesus Christ is God. So there's this heightened sense of responsibility that we have in the church because the sheep that we care for don't belong to us. They belong to Jesus Christ. And we'll have to give an account for what belongs to him. And it's like, how many shepherds need to lay their hands off the sheep? (laughs) You know, release the sheep. Feed the sheep. Unfaithful shepherds. Ultimately, they don't belong to you. And specifically during a time of persecution, it would have been particularly important for a shepherd to have a good idea of how are the sheep doing. And that idea is brought up in the word and back in chapter five, uh, the word for exercising oversight, looking, looking over. It's uh, the Greek word episcopeo, uh, which is from two words, scopeo, which means to look upon, to look over, you know, to care for, and epi, which means over, on, or upon. It's to, to look 
upon, to look over, you know, giving oversight to. Supervising would be another way that you could translate that word. Second Chronicles chapter 4 and, uh, 34 and verse 12 uh, uses uh, uh, this word in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, where they were uh, repairing the temple of God. And in Second Chronicles 34 and verse 12, it says, the men did the work faithfully with four men over them to supervise. This is a, a similar word, the same word that's used for the overseer in First Peter chapter 5. It's the responsibility of the, the shepherd to, to give oversight to, to know the condition of the flock. I'd also add it's, it's your responsibility to inform us as well. But uh, we need to know how to minister to you, particularly during times of affliction. For an example of that, why don't you uh, flip back to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 34, it's written in the context of affliction. The book of uh, Ezekiel was written during the, the time of the Babylonian deportation. Ezekiel was actually a, a contemporary of, of Daniel, and he wrote his prophecy during a time of affliction and oppression for the people of God. In chapter 34, he, he addresses the, the leadership of Israel during this time. And uh, after Jerusalem was destroyed, the people of Israel were deported. Some of them were taken into the service of Babylon, like uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were taken into the service of Babylon. Uh, but the, the rest of the population was just, you know, brought into Babylon and allowed to kind of be immigrants among the people of Babylon. You know, they're allowed to settle down to, to make a new life, but they lived under the oppression and domination of Babylon and its people. And just imagine a group of immigrants, you know, coming into your city and how are they treated? You know, are, are they just left alone or are they oppressed? You know, you're not going to take up my space. I mean, this is the kind of situation that the children of Israel are brought into. They're immigrants in a foreign land. They don't know the language. They don't know the customs of the people. And they're now making a, a new life. And the question is, now that these people are brought into this new land, in this strange land, strange culture, how are the, the, the spiritual leaders doing with these people? How did the people fare underneath the leadership of Israel? They're aliens and strangers, just like Peter describes the people of Asia Minor. He says, you're like aliens, you're strangers, you're scattered about throughout a strange land. But how did the spiritual leadership do? Take a look at Ezekiel 34. Let's see how they did. Starting at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, whoa, shepherds of Israel. That's never a good place to start. <laughs> you know, when, when the first words out of God's mouth are, whoa, you know, that's, that's bad news. Whoa, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Not a good report for the shepherds of, of Israel. Taking advantage of the, the sheep allowing them to, to scatter, not binding them up when they were broken. The Lord says, I've got a word against these shepherds. Woe to those shepherds. That was a word of judgment. Judgment for these shepherds. And then the Lord himself promises deliverance. Look at verse seven. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd, and my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus the Lord says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. 
I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and with grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. And that deliverance would ultimately come through the shepherd that the Lord would send. Drop down to verse 23. It says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Like I said, this is uh, during the time of exile. This is uh, years after David. <laughs> so who is this David that he's talking about? Who who is this one servant, this one shepherd, David, that he would set over them, that would feed them himself and be their shepherd? It's a reference to the greater David to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come from the line of David and rule over his people. David was that greater son. Uh, Jesus was the greater son of David, according to Psalm 110, whose throne and whose kingdom would be established forever. Second. Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Speaking about that greater one, that greater David who was to come, Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he's going to require an accounting from those shepherds who were supposedly watching the flock. And it's going to be a fearful day for many so-called pastors. It's going to be a fearful day for those who had other intentions than caring for the sheep. And there's three motivations that guide the work of a, of a shepherd. Why don't you flip back to 1 Peter chapter 5 for this. Three motivations that guide the, the work of the shepherd who exercises oversight. How is the elder to exercise this oversight? How is he to shepherd? Look at verse, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. How? Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is the, the way to follow the exhortation, okay? How, how are we to do this? Number one, willingly, willingly. Nobody should be pushed or forced into ministry. It's not under compulsion or out of necessity. We don't serve because somebody says, you need to do this. And much less because, you know, your bylaws say that we need so many elders on the board and we just need a warm body to, to fill the spot or else we're in violation of the bylaws, you know. So we just, we just need a man and drag, drag somebody kicking and screaming on the board. You know, what if the man doesn't have the desire? What, what, if, what if you don't find the qualified man to fill that position? Not only does the Lord provide the gifting, but he also provides the desire. The Lord does both. In the construction of the, the tabernacle in uh, Exodus 36, it says, uh, Then Moses called Bazalel and Aholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill. That's the gifting. He put the skill in them. Everyone whose heart stirred him. That's the desire. It's the gifting and the desire to come to the work to perform it. Uh, Psalm 54 and verse 6 says, Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. What kind of sacrifices does the Lord want? Willing sacrifices, the, the willing sacrifices out of the, the desires of the heart. The Lord looks for the heart. And the Lord is the one who works internally to give us those desires. The, the compulsion for, for ministry is not just from the outside, it's from the inside. The Lord works on the heart. One of the qualifications for ministry, according to 1 Timothy 3.1, is the desire for it. So that the service that the elder gives to the church is a willing service. And your push can't be the motivation for service. Because if people pushed you in, they can push you out, right? If, if that's where I got my, my desire from, from the people. And that's particularly important if you could face some kind of persecution for what you do, right? Knowing that the church called me is not going to be enough when I start to be persecuted. I, I need to have some kind of internal compulsion to do what I do. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. 
But the necessity, that compulsion didn't come from the outside. It came from within. God has given me this. God is driving me to this. For woe be to me if I do not preach the gospel. That this is something that the Lord has given me. Paul had an internal compulsion for the work that he did. It wasn't a, an external call. There was a, an internal call that drove him. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal a son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. That's, that's not where I got my call. <laughs> I got my call from the Lord. This internal call came from him. He's the one who set me apart for this gospel. And like I said, that becomes really important if you're going to suffer for what you're doing. It can't be according to the men, but it's got to be according to the will of God. According to the will of God. Number two, it needs to be eagerly. Eagerly. And not for sordid gain. Eagerly. There, there's a, not only a willingness, but an eagerness to perform the work. That word for, for eagerness is prathumos. prathumos. That word uh, thumos is from two words. Again, the, the thumos is, is a word that means passion. And the prefix pra heightens it. There's a, a great passion for the ministry. Shepherds are engaged and not, they're not driven by the money. I, I love what my uh, uh, professor from TMS used to say. He said that, uh, you know, uh, talking to a group of seminary students, he says, men, we don't get paid to preach. We don't get paid to preach. We would pay to preach. <laughs> like that's who we are. That's what we do. It's not a job. You don't do this for a, a paycheck. You are not driven by the money. You don't get driven by the paycheck. And if that's why you're in it, stay out of it. <laughs> get out and stay out. And it's shameful when people get involved in ministry for the money. And that's the, the point of that word, sordid gain. It's, it's not the, the money that's dirty. It's the people's motives that are dirty. Why they do it is dirty. For the money. You know, when a, when a Creflo dollar says, if I want to believe God for a $65 million plane, nobody can stop me. I mean, somebody stop him, please, right? <laughs> somebody stop the man. He's out of control. Please. <laughs> when, when, when your pastor stands up and says, you know, I, I need donations for a $65 million jet, um, we've got a problem. <laughs> we've got a problem. Costi Hen, the nephew of Benny Hen, uh, worked with his uncle, and in his book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, he gives a sample of the kinds of travel arrangements, hotel arrangements, shopping sprees that he experienced during two years of working in the ministry for his uncle. Air travel on a private jet, the Gulfstream 4, average cost of ownership, $36 million. Stays at the Royal Suite at the Burj Al Arab in Dubai, $25,000 per night. $25,000 per night. <laughs> Shopping spree at Harrods in London. Shopping spree up and down Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Vehicle chauffeurs for his Bentley, Rolls Royce, Mercedes-Benz, Range Rover, and Maserati. Apparel and accessories by top designers. All from the donations of desperate people who believe that their giving would result in healing, answered prayers, or prosperity for themselves. Praying on the desperate sheep for your $25,000 a night in a hotel. And at the time, he believed that they should be blessed with millions because they were blessing millions. That's, that's what Costi thought at the time. But it became obvious to Costi Hen over time that his family's desires were not for blessing, to be a blessing, but to receive a blessing that led them into all sorts of evil that 1 Timothy warns us of, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. For many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They will exploit you with false words. Take advantage of you. How, how do they do this? Costi describes one evening that would have made Tetzel proud. 
You know, if you remember who Tetzel is, he uh, sold indulgences during Luther's day. You know, the moment the, the, the coin in the coffer rings, a uh, soul from purgatory springs. You know, and Tetzel went around during his day, you know, don't you hear the cries of your, your parents, your grandparents, your dead relatives? Oh, they're just waiting to get out of purgatory. If you would just put some money in the plate. You know, so that's how he, he manipulated people, exploited them with false words. We can get people into heaven if you just give a little bit of money. Tetzel would have been proud of uh, the ways of the hens. Listen what, they, uh, what, a, what one night looked like, you know, as they're, you know, going around and ministering to thousands. Some of you are believing God for the salvation of your lost children. Some of you have sick babies and loved ones who are dying. Some of you are unable to conceive children and have been believing God for years. Others of you need jobs. Others of you are in debt. You've been believing God for a financial breakthrough. This is your moment. There is a special anointing here tonight for breakthroughs. I want you to sow a seed of faith in God's kingdom, and he will bless you with whatever you're asking him for. I'm, I'm going to anoint every single offering envelope, but only if you put your best seed in it. I've got this anointing oil, and I will personally anoint every offering envelope, but only if you put your best offering in it. Put your best offering in. The ushers are passing around the envelope. Sow your seed. Then they come down the aisles, come to the platform. I'm going to lay hands on you and anoint your offering as you place it in the buckets here on stage. And when Costi questioned the methods that were used, he was told that there's nothing wrong with imparting the anointing on people's lives for their obedience and giving their money for it. God will bless them for it, and we are blessed for offering it to them. <laughs> we're, we're, I mean, we're, we're, we're being blessed just because we've offered this gracious gift from the Lord to them. That's why we're blessed. Enough to, to turn your stomach, right? Praying on the sheep. I mean, this is exactly what Ezekiel was talking about. Exactly what Ezekiel's talking about. The push for possessions can't be your motivation. And if you're willing to get money for a lie, if you're willing to get money for a lie, do you think you'll be willing to suffer for the truth? <laughs> Elders need to be willing to suffer for the sake of, of righteousness. How are you going to be willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness if you're willing to lie for a paycheck? In John chapter 10, Jesus described the difference between a real shepherd and a hired hand. John chapter 10 verse 12 says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. People who are just in it for the money will leave when the money's not coming, when the persecution rises, when they, when they see danger. That word for the hired hand is misthotus. It was the word used for a day laborer, the one who is just in it for the money. I'm not here because I'm committed to the company. I'm just here because of what you're going to give me at the end of the day. That's why one of the qualifications for an elder is that he must be free from the love of money. You can't be in it for the money. Not for sordid gain. And if you have a leader who loves money, he will not suffer for the truth. Elders are to serve willingly, eagerly. Number three, humbling. Humbling. Ministry is not to be a power grab. It's not a power grab. The desire for position, power, prominence is deadly. If that's why you're in it, if that's why you serve because of some kind of position that you can have over others, that is deadly. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. It's not the office. It's not the, the title. It's a fine title he, he desires to have. No, that's not it. It's not about the title. It's about the work. I, I do this because of the work. I enjoy the work of the ministry. It's not about the title. It's not about the prestige. It's about the work. Something is off-center if a person desires the title, but not the work associated with it. And I've actually been on, you know, seen ministers, you know, who, who desired the title of elder or shepherd, but they didn't desire the work. They didn't want the work, but they wanted to, to retain the title. That was Diotrephes' problem. He loved to be first. He wanted the prominence, right? Third John 1 and 9, I, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Loving to be first. 
you know, it's the, the guy with the, you know, make sure that you got all the, 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 the letters after my name, you know, the right reverend, honorable, you know, DD, THD, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, just keep on, no, keep it going, keep it going. You know, the alphabet soup's got to be after the, every time you say my name. We don't desire for the prominence. We're, we're not here to exercise authority over people. That's not why you desire ministering. That's the way the Gentiles operated, right? Over in uh, Matthew chapter 20, just real quick, flip over to Matthew chapter 20. This comes right on the heels of uh, the disciples arguing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest. <laughs> I am the greatest. That's what they're arguing about. Look at Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 25. Matthew 20, starting at verse 25. It says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, <laughs> but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Listen to this. The, the, the motivation for an elder, or really any position within the church, it's not about you. <laughs> you understand that? It's not about you. It's about who you serve. It's about who you serve. I, I do this for the people that I serve. I do it for the work. It's not about me. It's not about me. I'm not here to lord it over people, for people to give me deference. Lording it over back in First uh, Peter 5, it's from the, the word uh, kata kuriyuo. It's uh, uh, from the, the word kurios, which means lord, and kata, which means down. I'm lording it down over people. You know, keep them, keeping the people down. To dominate, to control, to be a master over and that's not to say that elders don't have legitimate authority, but it's not to lord it over people. It's not to, to put people under your thumb. And a couple of reminders should help anybody who's tempted. As we said, the, the sheep are entrusted to the shepherd, but they do not belong to the shepherd. They don't belong to the under shepherds. They don't belong to the elders. They belong to the Lord. Amen. And Christ is the chief shepherd, and he's ultimately going to get, you'll have to ultimately give an account to him. He's the, the arch shepherd, the, the head shepherd, and one day we'll appear before him. So we don't, we don't lord it over people. What are we to do? Back to 1 Peter, Peter 5. What are we to do? Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but what? But proving to be examples to the flock. An example. MacArthur was uh, once asked to give an address on leadership and uh, those that held the conference asked him, you know, can you give us a, like a one-sentence definition of, of leadership? And at first he's like, that's, that's like an impossible task. How am I going to get everything a leader's to be in like a one-sentence definition? And after he thought about it for a while, he says, you know what? I can do it in less than one sentence. I'll give it to you in a word. Example. Example. A leader is to be an example. A living illustration of what he tells other people to do. What he wants to see in the congregation, he's the example of that himself. So he's not to lead by an iron fist, but, but by his, the force of his example. That word example is uh, used in verse 3. It's the, the Greek word tupas, tupas, where we get our English word type from. The, the word means a, a stamp, an impression, a, a mark that's left by a blow. And uh, it's where we get our English word type from. You know, some of you guys are... Some of you guys are old enough to remember the typewriters, right? <laughs> you know, back in the day when you had to, to write a paper and you're just like hoping you don't press the wrong key because <laughs> you're going to have to go back there with the eraser and, you know, do a space back and try to get it right again. I mean, it's just blotches everywhere, you know, turning in my, my papers. Some of you guys know what it's talking about when I, when I say a typewriter. You know, had that, that little like metal lever with the, the imprint of the, the letter on it and you hit that key and it strikes the ribbon. And hopefully the ribbon had the ink on it. <laughs> you know, strike the ribbon and then it leaves the impression. It leaves the letter on the page. That's the idea of example. That's the idea of example. That, that the leader's life should be so impactful that when he comes into contact with yours, he leaves a mark. That his life leaves a mark behind. That's the kind of person that should be leading. 
that, that you can follow my example. And that, that, that the, the impression that I give because of my life, because I'm committed to what I say I believe and I teach, that it leaves an impression behind. That's the kind of examples that we need in the church. That's why the primary qualification for leaders is not how well can they speak, but their qualifications. <laughs> Do they love their wife? <laughs> how are they at home? Do they have children who are faithful within the home? Are, are, they, are they organizing their home well? Are, are they known for fighting, bringing up fights? Are, are they known to, you know, I settle, I settle an argument with my fist. I'm going to make it happen. Like, like, that's the kind of leader that you avoid. I, I don't want anything to do with that kind of leader. I want somebody who's going to be an example. Paul instructed the leaders that, that followed him to be examples. First Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself to be an example. How are you going to lead people? It's through your example, Timothy. Titus, same thing. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Paul was an example. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Follow me because this is what I do. And Christ himself was an example. For you've been called for this purpose, chapter 2 and verse 21 of 1 Peter. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Christ said, I suffered now. You can, you can suffer. I, I stand for the truth and I'm willing to suffer for it. I want you to be willing to stand for the truth and to suffer for it. And that's the model of all biblical leadership. And that's why, where you start, start to, you know, you need to start asking yourself some questions, right? Husbands, what kind of example am I being? Am, am I just expecting my wife to follow because I can raise my voice and make myself big? Honey, you need to do this because I'm asking you. That's what I'm asking you to do. What? <laughs> or is there an example? No, like, I've served you, I served the family, and this is what I'm asking you to do. I'm not sitting on the couch and expecting you to do it all. No, I, I'm in there. I'm, I'm doing the work, and now I'm asking you to follow me because of my example. Parents with their children, how, how do you expect your children to follow you if, if you're not being an example of what you're asking them to do? You need to make sure that you're an example for your children at home. You know, more parenting books maybe need to be written on the example in the home. What kind of example are you being to your children? Like, that's, that's, that's important. Your, the, the power of your words will come from your example. It's not, it's not, you know, do as I say and not as I do. No, it's do as I say and as I do. That's how you're going to help your kids. Not to, not to be exasperated with your instruction. That I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not doing myself. Be an example of what you're telling your kids to do. And all of us are called to be disciple makers. How are you to disciple somebody else? You know, I'm, 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 I'm teaching you to obey all that the Lord has commanded us, but I'm not doing it. I just want to get in a room with people and tell them how they should do it. Let me tell you how, you how you need to follow the Lord. You need to read your Bible every day. You need to be praying for an hour every day. You need to be memorizing the book of Leviticus. I mean, that's what you need to do. And they ask you, you know, hey, can you, I mean, what's in Leviticus 5? Well, you know, that's, that's for the new Christians to do. I got this. Don't, don't ask me those questions. I'm the discipler here. I'm the discipler. Don't underestimate the power of your example. You need to be an example. Jim Elliott was a, a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, killed by a spear from the same people that he came to minister the gospel to. During his life, Jim Elliott longed for more people to become missionaries, but in his death, he inspired more people to go to other countries than he ever did during his life. His death sparked an interest in Christian missions among the youth of his day, many of them signing up to go to Ecuador, <laughs> the same place where he was just speared to death, and many people are signing up, I want to go there. Why? Was it because of his position, his prestige, his power? No. It was because of his example. This man was willing to die to get the gospel out. You know what? I want to do the same thing. The power of his example. He wrote in his journal, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. Listen to what else he said. 
Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, a short life? In me dwells the spirit of the great short-lived. It was a reference to Jesus Christ, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Listen to what he says. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Lord, let my life just be a a fuel for the light of the gospel. And if it's short-lived, so be it. (laughs) I want to be a flame to burn bright for my master. And he died, and the power of his example became God's fuel for missions. And what are the results of becoming Peter's, following Peter's exhortation? What are the results? Look back at uh, 1 Peter 5 again. Look at verse 4. And when, if, if all these things are true, <laughs> you know, you're, you're serving in a, in a way that's willing and eager. If you're being an example, you're not lording it over people. Then I can look forward to something. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That word for a chief shepherd is only found here in the entire Bible. It's used of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus is called the, the good shepherd. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. Jesus is called the, the good shepherd because he sacrifices his life. He gives his life up. In Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus is called the great shepherd the great shepherd, because his blood secures the eternal covenant of God. Eternal redemption is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the great shepherd because he secures salvation, eternal redemption for those who belong to him. But in 1 Peter, Jesus is called the chief shepherd, the arch shepherd, Because Jesus is understood as being the one who watches over the entire flock. Jesus watches over everyone. (laughs) And that would be a great motivation and comfort for people who are under a time of suffering and persecution. To a group of Christians who may feel out of place in this world. I'm an alien. I don't belong. I'm a stranger. I've been scattered. Those who are in this dispersion, exiles. I'm an exile on this earth. To hear that Jesus is the chief shepherd and that you belong to his fold, and that he does not lose one, what, what a comfort that is. The, 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 the chief shepherd is watching over me. The chief shepherd. And your life will one day be vindicated when he appears. And if you live for him, all that you do on this earth is worth it. Every time I've suffered for the name of Jesus Christ, it's worth it, and my chief shepherd sees me. And he has not lost me. Sometimes when you're going through difficulties, you can feel like, am I alone out here? Does anybody see this? You know, like the disciples when the boat's starting to fill up and it's like, Lord, do you care? We perish, Lord, we're perishing. And you're over here taking a nap. Like, seriously, do you care? What does the scripture say? That the chief shepherd is watching over you. Don't worry about it. Even while Jesus was asleep in the boat, he was still watching over his loved ones. It's amazing to think about the care that our Lord gives us. The chief shepherd does not lose one of us. John chapter 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's a great comfort to know that your shepherd Hold you in his hand. (laughs) Your shepherd is holding you right now in his hands. And as Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It's also a great comfort to shepherds. Great comfort to shepherds to know that the the flocks that they have to give and account for will not be lost. (laughs) That even though every one of us is an imperfect shepherd and we watch over imperfect sheep, that none of us will be lost. Every member is cared for by the chief shepherd who keeps track of everything. We're not lost. We're not alone. We're not uncared for. The the chief shepherd is watching over us. I love that song, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, never more. How he watches o'er his loved ones. 
died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth o'er them from the throne. And it's this chief shepherd who's going to appear one day. Amen? Second appearing of Jesus Christ. He's going to come. That's the major theme of uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 says that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He's coming back. And, and your testing now will prove in glory then. It's going to prove to be glory then, the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. <laughs> Fix your mind. Get your mind focused. Focus on that. He's coming. Focus your mind there. Your hope is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. He, he's coming. His appearance, that, that word for uh, the, the, the chief shepherd will appear, the appearance of the chief shepherd, uses the Greek word phanerao, uh, which means to make manifest, to make visible, or to make clear. It's going to be very clear, obvious. His first appearance, personal, visible, bodily appearance. It was obvious. The second coming of Christ is going to be just as obvious. It's going to be a personal, visible, bodily appearance of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. In the same way that he left, he's coming back again. Jesus is coming back again. We're not looking for just some kind of spiritual experience, a physical, tangible Christ who will return. That's what we're looking for. Zechariah 14 says that in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west, a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. His feet will drop down. It's a touchdown. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. It's going to be an obvious appearance. Matthew 24, verse 30 says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And on that day when he returns, he's going to reward those who have been faithful to him. He's going to reward the faithful. The incorruptible crown, the reward. Right here, it's uh, not the, the word for for the, the kingly crown, the diadem, but it's the Stephanos, the, the reward for victory. It was used for uh, those who competed in the games. They were victorious in the games or victorious in a, in a military battle. You know, people who had great civic worth, they were given this, this crown, you know, a wreath was placed on their heads to show honor, honor to those people. In uh, 1 Corinthians 9, Verse 25, it says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. We're, we're going to be given this imperishable wreath of honor that will never lose its beauty. Word for, for unfading, uh, the background of this word came from a, a flower that had an unusually long life and a red blossom that didn't turn colors. And he's saying, I'm going to give you this, this, this crown that's not going to fade. It's never going to lose its beauty. The, the, the glory that we will receive from the, the reflecting his glory that we will receive is never going to lose its, its, its beauty, its, its shine, its brilliance. And the faithful believers will reflect that glory of God on that day. And many believe that that crown of glory is the same thing that's discussed elsewhere uh, called the, the crown of life. In uh, James chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Revelation 2 verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. There, there is a, a glory that we will reflect on that day, if we've been faithful to Christ in this day. <laughs> and the more faithful we are now, the more we're willing to suffer now, is the brighter will reflect the glory then. So, so it's, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it to shine brighter in heaven and shine brighter in eternity because I've been faithful. I've been faithful. And those who are to be examples of that faithfulness 
are to be the shepherds. The, the, the shepherds are to be the example of that kind of, of faithfulness for their flocks. And at BBC, we're, we're not just looking for a few good men. We're looking for a few faithful men. <laughs> faithful men. Men who are willing to stand by their convictions. Men who are, are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. Men who are, are willing and eager and humble and not moved by external pressure or monetary gain or positions or prominence. We need, we need men who are willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness and if necessary to give their lives for the truth. That's, that's what, what we need. We need faithful men. And I praise God for, uh, for Matt Feldy and for his faithfulness and uh, just grateful for, for him, his humility and being an example of these things. And uh, we all need to be in prayer that the Lord would give us, grant to us more faithful men. Men, men who can stand and serve alongside of us uh, in this ministry for, for many years to come. So uh, please be praying along uh, with us, along with the leadership, that we'll have faithful men uh, who would be in our churches to, to lead us and to be the examples for us. In the 16th century, there was a man by the name of John Rogers, who was an English reformer, a Protestant reformer. He was a friend of William Tyndale, who you may remember that name as the uh, one who was responsible for, for giving us our English Bible, uh, Tyndale's work of translating the, the scriptures into English. But uh, if you've ever heard of the, the name, the Matthews Bible, Rogers was responsible for uh, uh, continuing the translation that Tyndale started in, a, in another version of the scriptures called the Matthews Bible. It was actually called the Matthews Bible because it was a, a pseudonym, a false name, because he was trying to protect himself uh, because there were those who were uh, uh, at odds with opposing uh, those who would translate the scriptures into English. But he's responsible for some of that translation as well as the, the marginal notes, the cross-references in that work. And in 1547, when Edward the, the VI came to the throne of England, Rogers and his work were protected because the, the king was sympathetic to the work of translating the scriptures. But in 1553, Queen Mary who's also known as Bloody Mary because of all the bloodshed under her rule, came into power and Rogers was in prison for over a year, about a year and a half in prison because he denied the, the, the real presence of Christ in the mass and because of his views on marriage, you know, the transubstantiation that they had within the Catholic Church. He remained in jail, jail for over a year. He wasn't allowed to see his wife or his 11 children and one of his children was actually born while he was in prison. Never saw uh, his child, his last child, until the day of his death. And after a year, he was executed. He was asked before his execution if he would revoke his abominable doctrine. And he answered this. He says, what? That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. I'm, I'm so committed to what I've preached. I'm so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so committed to, to, to what I find there, that I will seal this with my blood. And as he proceeded to the stake, there was a great crowd that accompanied him, and many were emboldened by his stand for the truth, and they were not afraid to make exclamations to strengthen him. So, so, here, so imagine this. Here's this guy going to the stake, and there's this group of people, a mass of people around him that are encouraging him and saying, I believe what you believe. Keep strong. Be firm. Stand firm. Even his children assisted in it, comforting him in such a manner, one historian says, it seemed as if he had been led to a wedding instead of to his death. <laughs> because of all the encouragement, just lines of people encouraging him, his children encouraging him to stand firm for the truth. Fox's Book of Martyrs details his death. It says, the fire was put unto him, and when it had taken hold both of his legs and shoulders, he is one feeling no pain, washed his hands in the flame as though it had been in cold water. And after lifting, lifting up his hands unto heaven, not removing the same until such time as the devouring fire had consumed them, most mildly and happy, this, this happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly father. A little before his burning at the stake, his pardon was brought if he would have recanted, but he utterly refused. He was the first martyr of all that blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time. And it has to be remembered that before he died, there was no example of another Protestant mar martyr in England's history. He was the first. <laughs> he was the first. The first person to have to go through this in England. 
but he became an example for many. <laughs> Are we an example of what we say we believe? And who knows who's going to come after us and what the Lord will do because of our stand for the truth today. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, what we learn in your word. And Father, we thank you for the examples that have gone before us, uh, those who have stood for the truth. And uh, Father, I pray that you would help us in our day, uh, that we would stand for your word, Lord, that we would be an example of what we say that we believe. Uh, Father, and that uh, we would look forward to that, that crown uh, that we will one day uh, wear and, and place at the, the feet of Jesus Christ, uh, the, the crown of, of glory and of, of life, uh, Lord, that, uh, that is really due to, to him and to his work in our life. Uh, so, Father, I pray that uh, you would receive all the glory from, from our lives today. Uh, make us the, uh, the kind of, of men and, and women who can be followed uh, because we have a, a conviction, Lord, that's uh, willing to, uh, to even suffer persecution if need be. Uh, because uh, we're committed to what we believe. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.